Welcome to Top of the Game with Javier Sade, where we talk to amazing people that are shaping the world. These lightning round talks explore what makes remarkable leaders tick. Thinkers and doers pushing humankind forward and at the top of their games. Impactful insights, global perspectives, valuable wisdom you can use every day in your life and work. This is Top of the Game. Enjoy today's episode. Here's Javier. This episode is a masterclass in emerging markets investing, capital allocation, and developing economies by one of the best in the game. Yemila Lude was very early investing capital in two consequential geographies, China in the early 2000s and Africa a few years later. He is now a London-based partner and head of Europe, Middle East, and Africa at TPG, a leading global investment firm managing $212 billion in assets. He leads investment activities for the firm in Africa and is a leader on emerging market investing activities in the technology sector for TPG's Rice Fund. Prior to joining TPG in 2015, Yemi founded and was managing partner of Adlibo Capital, one of the first venture capital firms focused on early stage technology investments in Africa. Previously, he was a principal at GGV, a leading Silicon Valley-based VC firm. He started his career as an engineer and held leadership and product management positions at Hewlett Packard and Siebel Systems. He holds a bachelor's degree in mechanical engineering from the University of Lagos, a master's degree in mechanical engineering from Stanford, and an MBA from Harvard. Enjoy this incredible conversation. Yemi Lalude, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure, Javi. It's uh, so good to see you. So good to see you. Um, where are you right now? I know you're a man of the world. You're in London, Riyadh. Where are you? No, I'm actually in uh, in London. It's a beautiful day in uh, in London, which uh, means it's basically not raining. <laughs> yeah, if you know London, that is in fact a beautiful day. So, look, uh, we're lucky to have you on the show, Yemi. Um, I've known you for years. Your story is just incredible. It'd be great if we start sort of where everybody starts at the beginning. Sure. So I was uh, I was born actually in in uh, California and in, uh, in Santa Monica. My dad uh, went to graduate school at UCLA. My parents got married actually in, in, in LA, so I was born there. But they moved back to Nigeria when I was quite young, when I was a, a baby. So I, I grew up in Nigeria. Mm-hmm. And went to school there through my uh, bachelor's degree at the University of of Lagos, and got really excited about uh, technology and Silicon Valley and everything that was happening there. Mm-hmm. And made a very uh, well. Some some people might have thought it was a rash decision, but to me, it seemed quite rational. Uh, so I wanted to go to graduate school in engineering, but I only applied to universities in California. I was was just really focused on tech and get into Silicon Valley. So I basically applied uh, to Stanford, Berkeley and UCLA and ended up going to uh, to Stanford for uh, for my master's degree in uh, in, in engineering. Uh, subsequently ended up working for uh, Hewlett Packard in the printer business, spent four years in, in Oregon in a small town, Corvallis, Oregon, population 40,000. Um, and uh, then moved down to San Diego still with HP to help start up a new business there uh, before heading over to to HBS where you and I met obviously uh, for, for for business school. So I was one of those people who went to business school with uh, 
plenty of years of experience after that, six years of work experience before. Um, now, when I was at uh, HBS, or maybe shortly before, I was chatting with one of my uh, good friends from Stanford, who was in the uh, in the uh, venture capital business mm-hmm. uh, at, the, at the time, and he's the one who sort of turned me on to venture capital. Uh, back when I was at Stanford, I mean, like nobody knew anything about venture capital. It was a cottage industry, even though Sand Hill Road is down the road from campus. Mm-hmm. It just wasn't uh, a time when VCs were on the front pages of magazines, as, as subsequently happened during the uh, dot-com years. Mm-hmm. I said, hey, um, you should look into into VC. Uh, I think you'll really enjoy it. said, okay, sounds interesting. How do I get into, into, into VC? Uh, but quite a long story short, I came up with the idea of trying to get an internship uh, post graduation at at uh, uh, at HBS. So you'll remember that you know after graduation, people normally would just take their 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 signing bonuses, travel around the world for a couple of months before starting their their jobs in, in September or something like that. But I thought that was a good opportunity to actually uh, go try to get a job in uh, venture capital. Got zero traction because VCs for one don't even hire interns. Certainly in those days, VCs didn't hire interns. Yeah, and like, it was like a cottage industry with a thousand people, right? Yeah, no, ex- exactly. So it just made no sense. Like most of the yeah. partners, you know, they were in their boats or something all, all, all mm-hmm. summer. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when I was at uh, HP, I'd done some work in Singapore. So I thought, huh, if I try to get a job uh, in Singapore, maybe, and I find somebody to hire me. So I literally downloaded the the list of all the VCs in Singapore and cold called all of them. Wait, wait, wait. Um, you cold called like on the phone? On the, on the phone. I mean, this is like, you know, there was, <laughs> there was no Zoom, right? Yeah, there's yeah. no Zoom. Yeah, yeah. Was literally get, get, send an email, get the phone number of the office, call, try to get, get a hold of someone and convince them to hire me for the summer. Now, the pitch, to be, to be fair, was maybe not the most compelling in the sense that. I'd already accepted a full-time job with civil system. So I had no interest in a full-time job. Uh, but I had 10 weeks free. I said, like, I have this experience, happy to come and be helpful to, to you. Uh, I got a lot of no's as, as you'd imagine. Uh, however, the lucky break was, uh, at HBS, I took a class at MIT called eLab, Entrepreneurship Lab. I took it with you. That was with Ken. Yeah, yeah, we're, I remember. We're, we're, of course, we're, yeah. In, we're in eLab together. So, so that was, that was good fun. Uh, I ended up uh, doing consulting work for a company in uh, in Madrid, which was uh, which was uh, which was great. Mm-hmm. Uh, but one of the professors um, uh, was actually doing some work with the uh, government of Singapore, and they had funded this VC firm called uh, Venture TDF. So he introduced me to uh, to Thomas, who ran Venture TDF, and we had you know, a call on the on the phone, and he said, "Look, sure, come over." I'll give you enough money to sort of survive in Singapore for the summer, uh, pay for your flight ticket. And basically, this is how I got into the investment. Wow. Well, look, that's that's just a head spinning story. And in fact, we graduated in 2000, which was literally at the very top of the crest of the bubble, uh, the Internet bubble, which ended up crashing down like literally 12 months later. So. Tell me a little bit about your way back into uh, venture capital, and really, where I wanted to f- focus your your comments on is on the VC fund you started 
uh, to invest in Africa, which I think you were one of the first, if not the first, to do one of these things. Yeah, no, no that's uh, that's absolutely right. Um, the the other lucky break, I guess, was uh, uh, Thomas who hired me in Singapore mm-hmm. was working uh, in addition to running Venture TDF. Um, he was working with three partners to start a firm with, uh, for the time, a very, very unique strategy of bridging the gap between the U.S. and China. This is when there were no U.S. VCs at all in China. Zero. Uh, zero. And so the first ones to, to do it. Uh, somehow they managed to pull it off uh, back in uh, 2000. So it was a 2000 uh, vintage fund. Mm-hmm. Uh, four partners never worked together before, separated in age by roughly 10 years. Each, each one of them, you know, like 10, 10, 10. So it was, it was really, really in, incredible. And that firm at the time was called Granite Global Ventures, now called GGB Capital. Yeah. Uh, so I spent a couple of years at Siebel, uh, kept in touch with the with the team after two years at Siebel, at which I, I went to Siebel because I, I really wanted software experience. I'd done hardware at, uh, at HP. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I joined um, GGB Capital uh, on Fund One. Uh, so I was one of the first six people there. It was the four founding partners and two of us who, who were associates. At the at the time, and just incredible experience uh, to to join a firm on the uh, uh, on the ground floor, so to speak. It's obviously been very successful uh, subsequently, but so what it took to build uh, a firm up from scratch. How do you build the culture? I mean, all of that, mm-hmm. um, and got the sort of experience you want to get at a at a big at a big shop. Because right? mm-hmm. I. I wrote Letters to LPs every every quarter. I wrote the PPM for our fund too. You know, at a big shop, you wouldn't get that sort of uh, that sort of experience. Yeah. Uh, but, but spent uh, six years with uh, GGB. So I was there from one uh, to uh, fund three, and so this would have been around two thousand and eight, and I got really excited about some of the trends I was seeing in Africa. Uh, because they, they they really reminded me of, of what I saw in China, where you had the uh, um, expatriates or the Chinese students uh, who stayed behind in the in the U.S. to to work, moving back to China to start companies, so, start investment firms. So yeah, so me, the, yeah, yeah, me, let, yeah, let me stop you for a second. So so you're kind of at the front end of the wave with what is now a, the biggest bilateral relationship the U.S. has, which is China. Yeah, and then you saw analog, analog kind of trends and connectivity in Africa, which led you to this idea. Is that kind of what you're? Yeah, no, that that's it. But there, there was an intermediate point actually. So, so this was, mm-hmm. you know, I, I had two data points from which I could extrapolate. So yeah. the first yeah. data point was China, and then the second was India, which which happened about five years after after China, right? So same story. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of the uh, Indians going going back, setting up investment firms, uh, starting companies, and so forth. Mm-hmm. So I thought that the same thing uh, could happen in in uh, in Africa, and, and so some of the same repats, as we as we call uh, call them, so opposite of expat uh, people moving back, starting companies. So it was a very very exciting time, uh, which is why I literally came up with the idea. I remember I was driving. Uh, from for, for those who are familiar with the Bay Area, I lived in San Francisco, but my office was on Sand Hill Road, so uh, 32, 32 mile drive, which I did every day on the Highway 280, and, and I came up with the idea on my way to work one morning that went, this is what I want to do, um, and uh, so 
I set about doing the research, trying to figure out where the opportunities uh, uh, would be, which is how uh, the firm I founded at Liberal Capital was uh, was born. Trailblazing. I know you date a lot of investments in Africa. You're arguably um, at that point and to this day, one of the people that know the most about business formation, you know, all the intricacies of Africa. Everybody thinks about Africa as this one place, but it's really dozens and dozens of countries with very different economies. And now you're one of the main partners at TPG, which is one of the largest principal investing firms, still focus on Africa, still focus on other places. But can you describe, but instead of describing your role at TPG, I think what would be interesting is given that you've seen the evolution, right? From, you know, being an operating tech company in the 90s to, you know, kind of this arc, this millennium. Talk a little bit about investing principle, you know, buying risk today in the things you do. Yeah, it's, um, you know, the, the, the thing about emerging uh, market investing mm -hmm. is that it, it requires all of the skills that an investor in the, in the, in the U.S. Would, would need to deploy. Mm -hmm. uh, plus an application of, of macroeconomics that you never thought you would care about after you took your last uh, macroeconomic class in, in college. Mm -hmm. uh, because what tends to happen in emerging markets is that you often have situations where the macro completely swamps and overwhelms the micro of the business, right? So, so when we're looking at uh, investments in, in the States, you'll focus on the micro of the business. What, what market are they in? The management team, they have the right skills, the vision, you know, like all of those things. So those are company level things that you you really worry about. Uh, but in addition to that, uh, in emerging markets, you have to worry about government policies and currencies and how that might impact your investment and the availability of dollars in the market and so on and so forth. Um, so so, so what, well, over the years, uh, and now I've been doing um, emerging market uh, investing for, for, for more than 15 years. Uh, the, the thing that I've found is that it's just critically important to to understand how those factors might might impact your investment. So you could do everything yeah. uh, perfectly. The management team could do a great job building the business and then the currency halves in one day and that's that, right? There's, there's just nothing you can, you can, you can do about it. So, so that's that's the uh, first big uh, learning in the emerging markets is, is just you just have to pay attention to the uh, to the macro. Um, the the other things that uh, one looks at and the other things we care about are not different from doing deals anywhere else, right? So it's the quality of the management team, the, the size of the market they they're going after, the differentiation of the product or, or, or service that they're they're bringing to market. So all of those things are the same, but but the but the one thing that I've learned is is the the, the micro just means you have to do things uh, differently. You have to be very disciplined on exit because the passage of time, of course, amplifies your risk, right? Because the the, the longer you're in, uh, the longer the chances that that something might move uh, in the micro environment that would impact your investment. So having that discipline to uh, to exit investments is just is just uh, critically important as opposed to trying to optimize for the for the last dollar which you might end up not, not getting this macro micro ish i love that framework 
uh, that it is just as hot because investing, well, putting money to work is easy. Getting it out with a, with a, with a gain is hard. And what you're saying is it's much harder in places that uh, where the macro uh, economy uh, dynamics are complex, difficult, lots of moving parts, some things out of your control. It'd be great to close it up. Kind of your views, again, you've been at kind of this front row seat. Um, I know you do emerging markets everywhere, but Africa specifically, which just has captured the imagination of everyone for many reasons, right? It used to be thought of as a place to get resources, but now it's like this amazing machine of innovation. Everybody has a phone, Kenya, everybody pays with the phone. Like it's literally just this amazing place. What's your view on the future of Africa? That's a big question. Mm. Yes, it's the, the billion dollar question, isn't it? Um, I'm, I'm, I'm very optimistic about the, the, the future of the, of the continent. Mm-hmm. And Africa has quite a few things, it has plenty of challenges, no doubt about it, but also has quite a few things going for it. Uh, number one is the people, which is what uh, this uh, this is all about at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. And by the people, I just, uh, I, I mean, the fact that Africa just has the youngest population uh, in, in, the, in the world. And in, in many African countries, more than half the population uh, be under the age of 21. We have roughly eight billion people on the planet. And many of the of the uh, uh, developed markets. I just saw uh, actually in one of the newspapers today that uh, uh, China actually had a, uh, a reduction in population uh, year over year. They peaked two years ago. Now, now they're already moving in, in the opposite direction. Yeah, the one-child policy is starting to hurt. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Exactly right. Yeah. Uh, but even in places that don't have that, in Western Europe, you just don't have enough. Uh, uh, children per per female uh, to hit the uh, the replacement rate, right? Mm-hmm. So, uh, so this, but then you have Africa where the opposite is 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 happening. So, so this human capital, I think, is uh, if harnessed uh, properly, is a huge asset uh, for the uh, uh, for the continent. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the the continent uh, continues to be a big source of. Of minerals and materials and and uh, and 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 all of that, which is which is positive as as, as well. Mm-hmm. But the ability, which we're starting to see now, for people to actually harness the the talent, get access to global markets, is something that it, I think is quite different. So literally, as an engineer in Ghana, you can get a job sitting at home or working from Ghana and working for a company that is in Japan or in the U.S. Uh, agriculture is is very important uh, to the economies of many African countries. Africa has the the the, the greatest uh, arable land uh, on the on the planet. Again, in an environment where with climate change, uh, there's a big reduction in arable land around the world. And then the, the the thing that really pulls all of this together in an area that and I'm quite passionate about is technology, because it's technology that enables. Uh, people to work remotely. It's technology that enables people to overcome the lack of infrastructure to do very interesting things, like uh, the mobile money example you gave in uh, in Kenya. So, so I'm, I'm I'm really quite positive about the long term prospects. This is a masterclass in so many things: emerging markets, Africa. 
from one of the foremost experts in investing in this innovation in emerging markets in Africa. Yemi, it is awesome to have you keep doing what you're doing. Thanks so much, uh, Javier. Oh, always a pleasure catching up. Looking forward to seeing you in person soon. We hope you enjoyed today's conversation. For information and links about today's guests, check out the show notes and visit topofthegame-thepod.com. Your host, Javier Sade, the show Top of the Game. Thanks for listening.